You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Doug Kay, executive producer of IT Conversations, goes on the record online. Our content is is blogged. Our content is linked to. Uh, it, our content is part of the conversation, if you will, hence the name. Uh, for an example, if you take some of uh, our most popular sessions, like uh, uh, a couple of the programs we did with Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote The Tipping Point and Blink. If you go to Google or Yahoo and you search for Malcolm Gladwell, you'll see Malcolm's site come up first, but you'll see ours come up number second. I think the same is true for Thomas Barnett. And that's because those programs have been heard by tens of thousands of people, many of whom who have written about them in their blogs, and they've linked to those programs. So those programs actually have had late-life peaks and are continuing to be very popular. Hello, and welcome to another edition of On the Record Online. This is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. If you're new to the show, we do in-depth, one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, as well as, from time to time, discussions with influential bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the media business as we know it. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, PR guy by day, podcaster by night. Um, I specialize in helping organizations integrate the web into their marketing communications and PR initiatives. Uh, I am also the founder and president of iPressroom Corporation, uh, which leases online marketing communication software uh, to businesses uh, on a monthly basis. Um, I am also personally and professionally interested in how technology and the internet is changing the way organizations communicate and the way people consume media and information. Today we have a interview with Doug Kay of IT Conversations. Uh, it is around 45 minutes. Uh, I have known about uh, Doug for some time, listened to a number of his podcasts um, over at IT Conversations, uh, but I had the first time to hear him, uh, first opportunity to hear him speak just recently at the uh, Portable Media Expo and podcasting um, um, conference in Ontario, California, which was held uh, November uh, 2002, and I was really moved by what he had to say and so I went up to him and I asked him if he would uh, uh, be on on the record online and he agreed Um, so uh, I hope you enjoy this interview if you have suggestions for other guests you'd like to hear on the show um, I welcome your comments uh, suggestions and feedback Uh, you can post it to the blog at www.spinfluencer.com Um, To subscribe to the podcast feed, uh, you can do that at www.ontherecordpodcast.com. You can also send us audio comments, um, either by emailing them to spinfluencer at gmail.com. And I think they have to be under 5 megs, or or I think Gmail kicks them back. Uh, Or you can try calling the audio comments line at 206 202 4805. Uh, there's also another service called Waxmail uh, that's uh, getting a lot of attention. Uh, it was actually pointed out to me by uh, uh, Shell um, 
um, Holtz and Neville uh, Hobson of the four immediate release Hobson and Holtz report, uh, which I am also a contributor to. And so I was happy to learn about that. And it's um, a great way for you to uh, record audio comments and send them into us. So if you're interested in doing that, please uh, check out that service. Uh, it is free. Um, next up after this episode, the next episode we have, uh, I'm, I'm actually real excited about it. It's going to be a discussion with um, uh, the editor of Muslim World Today, which is a local paper here, and uh, Robert Spencer, who wrote uh, the Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam. And I'm still working on someone... Um, uh, who is an expert in uh, the New Testament for a discussion about how me, how uh, the religion, uh, how Judaism and, and Christianity and, and Islam are portrayed in the media. And I'm very, very excited about that. We're, I'm, I'm hoping it will be a fairly secular discussion, uh, but I think it should be fairly interesting, particularly having that around holiday time. And um, also, um, on, on the books, uh, we are going to be doing a one-on-one -on -one with Dan Dan Gilmore, uh, which I'm very excited about because he's a very busy man, and it's been quite tough to, to schedule that. But it looks like we do have a time nailed down, and hopefully that'll happen. Um, so if you uh, go ahead and subscribe to the, the feed uh, at www.ontherecordpodcast.com, uh, you can... At that address, you can get it through iTunes or Yahoo or directly. You can get the RSS raw there, however you like. Um, so please, uh, uh, check it out. Um, and now uh, we are going to get on with the interview with uh, Doug Kay. Uh, as always, it comes to you entirely uncut and uh, on the record online. And we are going to play it for you in its entirety after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from iPressroom. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom. Tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Doug, thanks for taking the time to um, to join me for this Glad episode of On the Record Online. Glad to be here, Eric. Uh, so I, I had the pleasure of hearing your keynote at the Portable Media Expo and Podcasting Summit in Ontario, California, uh, just a couple weeks back, and I have to say I was really moved by what you had to say. Oh, thank you very much. And just because you, you did such a, a good job of uh, articulating uh, uh, why podcasting is such a big deal... Uh, I, I thought I would, that would be our first question, and, and maybe you could tell us, uh, you know, in your own words, um, you know, what's, what's the big deal with podcasting? Why is everyone talking about it? Why is it so important? I, I think there are probably a lot of reasons. Um, you know, the one that, that most people talk about is the whole idea of citizen journalism and citizen media and so forth. And that is an important one because... Uh, there have been gatekeepers to all of this. Uh, and the, the whole concept of the management of scarcity has been a pretty big deal for a long time in traditional media. Uh, certainly we've seen that in blogging. We've seen it change. Uh, we're, it's going to take us a long time before we really digest what that's all about and what that change is like. But podcasting and video casting are essentially the same kind of thing as blogging uh, in terms of opening up media to individuals. And, and as we can see, it's having a huge impact on what we call traditional media as well. 
And how do you how do you know how do you know that it is having such a, a huge impact? Well, one one reason you know I was watching Chris Matthews this afternoon on um, MSNBC. You know, uh, they're podcasting the show. They've got bloggers. They've got uh, Chris Matthews Hard Blogger, whatever that's all about. Uh, so they're they're reacting to it. That's not the same thing, but uh, we're seeing things like the recent layoff at the New York Times of of quite a few people, uh, and I think they're they're blaming that on a couple of things. You know, one is the effect of blogging uh, and the internet. The other is uh, cutbacks in uh, classified advertising based on things going on in that world as well. Um, so all of this is you know causing huge changes in media. Not not all for the good, but certainly big changes. Tell us, uh, if you would, um, about IT conversations. What is IT conversations? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, it's probably the worst named thing imaginable nowadays because it barely reflects what IT conversations actually does. It started two and a half years ago, uh, literally putting up conversations, that is, interviews about IT online. That's what I started doing. But now IT conversations is actually a network of multiple series, uh, conferences, interviews, interview programs, and so forth. Uh, we publish um, 10 to 12 programs every week. Uh, almost all that work, the post-production, the writing, the photo work is done by uh, a staff of volunteers. And the topics have gone way, way beyond IT and now uh, into technology, science, and, and now just big concepts, general ideas of a variety of types. IT, of course, standing for information technology for those of us who are uh are listening over at the studios and the labels and uh, are, are not geeks. Um, but um, tell me if you would, uh, Doug, how do you get it all done? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a non-profit effort, right? That's correct. And uh, it, we, it starts with a sign on my wall, which I can see right here, which says, sleep is the enemy. And, and that's rule number one. Uh, this is my full-time gig. I probably work 60 to 70 hours a week. Uh, probably probably more than 70 now. Uh, so I put a lot of my time into it. But the, the big thing is leveraging Team ITC, our staff of volunteers. There are about 40 active people at the moment. Uh, and they're literally doing all the post-production, all the writing, so that my responsibilities are primarily uh, sort of an acquisition editor, if you will. I make the arrangements with the conferences to secure the rights to, those, to their recordings. Uh, I do the final review, but we have people who are, like I say, doing the post-production. We also have series producers who are reviewing that work before it's published. We have mentors who are there to answer questions of the new volunteers so that I don't have to do that. Uh, so, in fact, if all I had to do was run IT conversations the way I am, that would probably only take me about uh, two to three hours a day because that's all it takes me to both bring in and publish the shows. The majority of my time is spent working on new projects, either writing code or uh, doing business development work. So now, some of the programs are not produced at conventions or seminars or conferences, right? Some are uh, weekly discussions featuring subject matter experts talking about developments in a certain uh, area of the industry, right? I mean, they're not mm -hmm. all done at panels and, and conferences, right? Yeah, it turns out that we do a lot of conferences for a few reasons. One is uh, it's a great way to get a lot of uh, content. You know, if we can cut a deal with a conference to get their audio, we've got 25 or 30 programs uh, that we've already figured out what they should be. Uh, 
The second is that conferences are, our goal is to capture conferences that would otherwise disappear, that would evaporate. So we're actually going out and not for looking for the maybe the biggest conferences, but the ones that don't have the resources on their own to, to publish themselves online. But yes, we do have a number of programs that are um, not conferences. Uh, the most prominent is probably Tech Nation. That's a regular public radio program produced and hosted by Moira Gunn. And she interviews two or three people every week. That's syndicated to over 200 public radio stations. It's on Armed Forces Network. Uh, it's all over the world. But we do the podcast edition for Moira and that show. And then we have a number of other hosts um, who aren't weekly. They're sort of occasional. Uh, we've got Larry Maggid, who also does a lot of work for CBS. Uh, we have Denise Howell, who does a show on legal issues. We have Phil Windley. Phil just did a terrific interview with Thomas Barnett, formerly of the State Department, um, all about Barnett's new book. And we hope to have that up within the next uh, week or so. Uh, Hallie Suit, Dave Slusher. I know I'm leaving people out, but there's some just terrific shows that we produce here. So now all these shows that you produce, um, you do so on a on a nonprofit basis with the producers of the shows. That's correct. Now, now nonprofit is the way we run the business. Uh, we are a nonprofit corporation, but uh, that doesn't mean there isn't money flowing through. We do have commercial sponsors. We do. Uh, we are starting to work with other nonprofit funding sources and the like. So it doesn't mean there's no money. It simply means that no one's making a profit. There are no shareholders and so forth. Now, originally, I know uh, Steve Gilmore's show was on IT Conversations. That's correct. Yes, Steve and I created the Gilmore Gang. Uh, I think it was around May of 2004. And tell us, if you would, the story behind his transition over to Pod Show. Well, I th I think that. You know, probably best to get it from Steve because it was his decision. Uh, you know, we had worked together on the show for, I guess, about uh, eight or nine months, and Steve wanted to do something different with it, uh, primarily in the area of commercialization of the of it, and uh, thought that was important. And we weren't in a position to pursue it on the sort of aggressive basis that I think Podge was able to do. So, uh, with our blessing, Steve moved that over. So let me ask you a fairly personal question, if I may, and certainly, you know, don't answer if you don't want to. But, I mean, how do you do it? I mean, how do you afford to do it? Um, you know, don't you need to make money? I mean, or are you just in this uh, as a philanthropist? Well, I, I was... Uh, I was actually semi-retired when I started this, so I guess you'd have to say I'm a philanthropist in a sense. I, um, I mean, I don't have money to throw around, but I can afford to do this because of the, uh, the money that I've made from other sources, the dot-com days, the publishing royalties, uh, other things that I've done in the past. I'm lucky. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I had a, a career as a motion picture sound editor, then I had 26 years or so in IT, uh, including the dot-com world. I left the last dot-com in the year 2000, uh, semi-retired, wrote a couple of books, one of which I published myself, still generating money for me, and uh, I'm able to do this. I can't, you know, again, I can't afford to uh, throw money into it. I can only afford to put my time into it, but, you know, I'm paying the mortgage. So now... Um where did you do motion picture sound? Uh, I started, well, actually, I graduated from college in drama and ended up working in San Francisco, where I was from, uh, in the motion picture business. Uh, Which is went, not easy to do, work in motion pictures in San Francisco. There's not a lot of jobs. Oh, there's a lot. And I was, I was very lucky. I, there's two. There's, you either work for, well, you either work for Saul Zantz, uh, Francis Coppola, 
or um, or George Lucas, right? Those are the only games in town. <laughs> well, yeah, I uh, actually I did some work for Zoetrope in the early days, but you know I was a union guy. I was very lucky. Uh, there was a uh, there was uh, I was working in as an apprentice for the union here. Here in San Francisco, there's one union that does. Uh, stagehand work as well as motion picture work and I was working as a stagehand after I got out of college great living by the way and uh, I got sort of in the middle of an interesting union dispute over who had which which local of the union uh, the IATSE had the right to represent sound men and my local wanted to fight for that and uh, they they held me up as an example of somebody who could do motion picture sound, even though I was fairly green at it in those days. So uh, I was a union sound guy here in San Francisco, which means I worked a lot. I had uh, you know I was working all day, all night uh, doing motion picture work. Production sound or post production sound? Well, that's I started in production sound. I started you know as a boom man, as a location recordist, and uh, then I moved into post production studio work. But then I. Um, I wanted to do more, so I went to grad school. I went to the uh, uh, Institute of Film and Television at NYU, moved to New York with my wife, and uh, went into post-production sound more there. I had done I had done music post-production and commercials, uh, radio commercial type stuff here in San Francisco, but I hadn't done that in film. So in New York, uh, after I was at the NYU, uh, I ended up doing a lot of post-production sound and editing in New York. So now it's a bit of a detour here because I, I want to talk about new media, but um, I, I'm a I'm a fan of a sound designer by the name of Richard Beggs. I don't know if you he does a lot of work with Saul Zance, and he did the um, one of the movies that he did the sound for uh, was a movie called Avalon. Hmm. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Uh, I think I saw Avalon, but I don't know Richard. I don't know who that is. And there was a certain scene in the movie towards the end um, where the sound of a clock. Uh, the tempo of the clock be- gets quicker and quicker as the scene proceeds to escalate the tension. Uh-huh. And it's so effective. <laughs> and uh, that and, of course, The Conversation being such a wonderful movie with respect to sound as well. Oh, that's, that's, that's the classic, isn't it? Yeah. So now tell me, how did your experiences as a sound designer prepare you for podcasting? Well, certainly I, the technology wasn't the problem for me. That that made it easy. Uh, what The main thing it's enabled me to do is to keep the standards high and to help other people on our team uh, work at a fairly high degree of uh, audio professionalism. Our our goal is to produce content that's in every way broadcast quality. That, uh, In fact, it has a number of times our programs have been excerpted or used entirely in public radio in the States and around the world. Uh, and so we, we keep that as one of our requirements, is that the stuff has to be good enough that any public radio station, or commercial radio station for that matter, could use what we've done. Uh, and my experience, of course, a lot of it was old, which was great for me because it meant rather than getting sucked up in a lot of digital sound stuff, I was able to go out and acquire really inexpensively a lot of old analog gear that I had used over the years uh, that's now available very cheaply on eBay. Uh, so I have a, you know, a couple of racks full of gear that, that are, are completely ridiculous, but uh, very affordable. But anyway, th- back to your question, though, of um, what that allowed me to do. You know, I, I was in uh, editing in the days of razor blades. You know, motion picture sound editing was something you did with uh, 16 or 35 millimeter film stripe. And, you know, you sliced it with a razor blade and you put it together with tape and you did all that kind of work. Well, you know, you sit down with a, a workstation now to do this and the productivity is so much higher. But the techniques are remarkably the same. 
so uh, it's helped a lot. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had to learn a lot, obviously, about MP3 encoding, things that didn't exist uh, back in the 70s, but uh, uh, it's been a lot of fun. And you also said uh, that you know how to write code, computer code. How'd you, how'd you learn how to do that? Well, in uh, the late 70s, I was... <laughs> it's a funny story. I was doing the post-production uh, dubs for a whole series of movies by Lena Wertmuller. I don't know if you know who she was. Never heard of her. <laughs> she was a, a German filmmaker. I think she's still alive, but she made some of the most depressing films you can imagine. Well, put it this way. Uh, she made the original of Swept Away, which Madonna was in as a remake. So... <laughs> Uh, one of the one of the all-time worst films, from what I've heard. Anyway, uh, I was doing you know uh, eight hours a day, forty hours a week of um, working with actors doing the dubs for these movies, and I was getting really bored. So I asked the chairman of the board of the company I worked for if I could help with the assistance of uh, automating the plant there, and uh, he put me in charge, and uh, I had to go out and learn programming, and uh, I fell in love with computers and uh, started a business and. Uh, made the switch from the movie business to the IT business. So let's uh, switch gears now back to podcasting. You Let's say you realize that there's a conference of some kind and they don't have any podcasting integrated into their program and you think it would be a good conference um, to podcast and you call them up and you say, hey, you know, we want to come in and podcast and they say to you, uh, why should I do that? You know, I'm charging for people to come here. You're asking me to give away the content for free. What do you tell them? Yeah, it's been a challenge over the last couple of years to figure that out, but we now have a pretty good uh, reason for it all. First of all, the reason for doing it is that we're going to extend the audience for what they do by two orders of magnitude. Take, for example, the Podcast Expo. There were 700 people registered for that event, uh, and we're going to hit perhaps... 70,000. Uh, well, actually, we're not. It turns out that we're not going to do the audio from that. But had we done the audio for that, we would have hit 70,000 people. And Tim Berkwin's audio will perhaps hit that many. So if you're in the business of, if your goal is to influence people, if your goal is to, you know, have a big um, footprint on what you do, then we can, by two orders of magnitude, increase what you do. The challenge is how do we do that without cannibalizing your registrations. You don't want to, you know, you want to sell out your conference. You don't want people to say, hey, I could stay home and hear it for free. And one of the ways we do that is that we spread that content out. We're, we're only looking for long shelf life content. We're not interested in news or current stuff. It's not a matter of let's hear the IT conversation show today because the show that we put out today might have been recorded a month or two ago or in some cases four months ago. So we're looking for long archival value in our content. And that means that from these events, we're going to publish approximately one show per week, beginning about a month after the event. So a 25-session event is going to take six months to roll out through IT Conversations, which clearly isn't going to cannibalize the registrations from the live event. So now, this distinction, which also holds true in print media, the idea that um, if you are a daily publication, uh, you can turn news stories around, but if you're a monthly publication, you're uh, looking for feature content that has a, a longer shelf life. This idea that um, that you want uh, content that is is going to is going to last, do, does that mean um, uh, 
by the same measure that programs that are uh, specific to a certain day, you know, like a daily source code or any of these programs where they're covering news of the day, that, that somehow the inherent value of those libraries are less worthwhile or less valuable? Well, I would say that the value of the shows is every bit as worthwhile. Is the value of those show, how that value decreases over time is different, though. Our, uh, the, something like the Daily Source Code is something that, you know, you're not likely to go back and listen to the shows that Adam Curry did a month ago. Uh, it's hard enough just to keep up. It's hard enough just to listen to them as they come out day after day. In fact, when Adam misses a show, some of us breathe a sigh of relief because, you know, we get a day off. But uh, in our case, the listenership obviously peaks in the first 24 hours. That's because of all the RSS subscriptions. But it then drops off and then builds slowly and sometimes with some pretty big peaks. And that, that's because our content is is blogged, our content is linked to, uh, it, our content is part of the conversation, if you will, hence the name. Uh, for an example, if you take some of uh, our most popular sessions, like uh, uh, a couple of the programs we did with Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote The Tipping Point and Blink, if you go to Google or Yahoo and you search for Malcolm Gladwell, you'll see Malcolm's site come up first, but you'll see ours come up number second. I think the same is true for Thomas Barnett, and that's because those programs have been heard by tens of thousands of people, many of whom who have written about them in their blogs and they've linked to those programs. So those programs actually have had late life peaks and are continuing to be very popular. How do you manage the spigot? I mean, I must, it must get very expensive. Well, at the moment, we're blessed. We have a partner, Limelight Networks, who uh, helps us out quite a bit and makes that very affordable for us. Uh, moving forward, we're going to be working with the Internet Archive, uh, as a place to uh, keep keep and distribute some of our content, uh, but we're also, you know, quite honestly, we're looking for funding. Uh, the new nonprofit, which has only been official for about a month now, uh, we're actively pursuing both uh, commercial and nonprofit uh, funding sources for that. We want to keep the content free. That's really important. Do you think? Uh, I, and I, I had sent you an email before we got on the phone to ask if you had written, uh, if you if you had read uh, Doc Searle's recent post on um, the privatization of the net on Linux Journal, and you said you had. Uh, I mean, ultimately, are the gatekeepers just going to be the the media companies? I mean, is are are the are the uh, the studios and the record labels really just a red herring? Well. You know, I think Doc is making a really good point. It's not it's not an original point. Um, if you would also summarize if the story, because I'm sure you can do a much better job of it than me. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, in fact, I, I was talking to Doc on the phone about an hour before he had to file that story. Uh, it's a 9,000-word story. It's quite an undertaking and, and, and a, an impressive piece of work. But um, uh, the issue, the, the primary issue that Doc is talking about is one that's has a couple of parameters. One is whether or not a network should be a smart network or a dumb network. I'll talk about that in a second. And aside from that, uh, who controls it? And these are related because the concept of a dumb network says that it is just, um, as Doc says, it's just a place. That's all it is. It's like a public park, and anybody can go and use the park and do whatever they want, and nobody really controls it. Uh, although there are a couple of rules and that so forth. But 
the idea of a smart network says that there is intelligence built into the network. Uh, right now, the beauty of the Internet, as Vince Cerf designed it and as Doc mentioned in the article, is that the network is really dumb. It's dumb, it's simple, and that means it can be used for things that Vint and the other people never, ever intended it to be used for. You can put telephony, video, uh, interactive applications like Gmail, I mean, you name it, it's just a pipe that will get bits from one end to the other. But the carriers, their goal is to basically build intelligence into the network. They're, they say services, they want to build security into the network, uh, whereas you know, for the value of the commons, you don't want security in the network. You want security to be something that's maintained from one endpoint to the other. It's just an end-to-end -end service. So the smart network has all these services built in. Well, once you have services built in, uh, somebody's got to run those services. They've got to be paid for those services. Those services are subject to regulation, which is a pretty big deal. And that is going to, and there's a lot of pressure in that direction, which will essentially cripple the net as we know it today. And that's the fundamental uh, perspective of Doc's article. And so, I mean, is, is this where we're headed? I mean, is there any way around this? Uh, I mean, there was an interesting uh, book I read um, uh, in, I forget the name, Corporate America We Trust. And in, in, um, uh, it, was, it was basically a... Um, a book uh, written by an author out of Chicago, and I'm not in the room with my bookcase, so I can't uh, read it out, but I'll uh, post it to the show notes. It's terrible. Yeah. I have a hard time re remembering the names of authors. Um, but the, the basic premise of the book was um, that we are, in this country, really governed by corporations, not by uh, um, legislatures. Uh, legislators. And I wonder, I mean, is that where we're headed with the Internet? Are we all just dreaming about this idea of you know, free access to a network where we can be heard. I mean, are we ultimately going to be playing some sort of a tax? Well, I think it's, you know, it's not a political issue per se, and it's not a matter of, you know, free access. It's, it's a fundamental concept about what the network is for and who it serves, or whom it serves, I should say. So, um, the, I mean, take, take, for example, the telephone network. You know, if you go back uh, you know, 30 years, you could not connect a device to the phone network. There were no modems. Well, there were modems, but you had to l l basically lease them from the phone company. You were not free to put data on the network. Um, you couldn't do that. Even though it was technically quite possible to use the network for data, that was not allowed. And there was a major court case called the Carter Phone decision that allowed people to basically say, look, the network is there. We're going to pay for the use of the network, but that's it. And uh, we want to be able to put our own equipment on there and do the things we want to do. So it's it's a matter of control. I think that there are, sure, there are issues about corporations who are controlling politicians and corporations run the country. That's certainly a part of it. But I think, in fact, this issue is bigger than that because it's a matter of people just understanding um, you know, what's important to the society. Uh, this, the same is true with, uh, you know, what Larry Lessig's doing with trying to protect the commons. The whole idea of what's happened to the, the copyright laws uh, that were originally there to uh, both protect 
creators as well as protect protect uh, the the people in the country so that we had certain rights as well so Let, they, let's they, talk about copyright right. laws for a minute because yeah. obviously that's a huge area of discussion uh, in in podcasts because there is no practical way to secure a license to uh, commercial music at this point I mean search you can certainly do it you've got to clear four licenses I mean there's no unitary license at least so I'm told by the experts um, I mean, do you see this as as something that is ultimately going to happen, or is it just going to be something where the record labels will look the other way if they think that uh, the podcast that's playing the music is ultimately going to result in album sales? Well, first of all, you, you can't get those four licenses. You, you you were right. There are four entities, perhaps, or so, that from whom you would need a license, but most of them don't even offer a license to podcasters. So well, they do, room. though, because it's a download license. It's the same thing as a download license, right? I don't know if that's true. The last time I looked at some of the licenses, uh, they they may have done that but they're the the fees per download were so high that you could never afford to do it on a podcast right so it's and not practical it's certainly, yeah, certainly not practical. The, the streaming licenses are, are don't allow it and the streaming licenses are more reasonably priced but they wouldn't but, apply to a podcast right because a podcast is a download that's correct that's correct so um you know the again the problems in the music industry uh, or the, let's say the changes that are coming to the music industry are much, much bigger than podcasting. We are just the tip of the tail when it comes to the revolution, although you know, people like uh, the, the Pod Show Network are trying to make this uh, much more of an issue, and they're doing a, a great job on it. But the fact is that today in podcasting, you essentially cannot use any licensed, uh, any music that comes from record labels. You can't use BMI or ASCAP uh, music that's done by their uh, composers uh, uh, and all the other agencies that are involved. So if you want to use any music, you need to get it directly from the source. You need to get permission. You need to go to places like uh, the Podsafe Music Network or Magnatune to get your music. And and that's that's just the way it is, period. It's, it's, it's black and white. It's a very simple decision. But on the other hand there is now some terrific music that's available we did a we did a live stream from a conference in maine called pop tech last month and it was four days of live streaming and we had all the breaks and lunch lunch breaks and coffee breaks and all that and we had some people from the podsafe music network program all the music during the breaks and I was really impressed with the quality of what we got from every imaginable genre. It was uh, it was so good that unless you're in the business of playing hits, uh, you're not for a, at a loss for getting good music. Do you think uh, there's an opportunity for businesses to communicate through podcasts? Oh my gosh! I mean, so many ways. Uh, you know, uh, for example. You can sponsor podcasts. You can be an advertiser. You can create your own podcasts uh, publicly. And then there are tremendous opportunities for internal use of podcasting within an organization, in a, in a closed audience. That's also amazing. So, uh, yes, it is. Uh, there are two reasons why podcasting, I think, might really work particularly well for a, an organization. One is if the people that you want to reach are particularly mobile particularly mobile you know if for example you know your organization has as its employees or as its customers people who are exercise fanatics uh, and all of whom who have iPods well that's a no-brainer that's an easy one 
but you know, it's a great way to get out to a sales force, for example. Michael Gohagen has a company that does just this. He goes into companies and says, I can give you a way to distribute audio content to your employees in a way that you can control who hears what. In fact, you can even know when someone's heard the stuff or not. I believe you can do that. So tremendous opportunities. Tell us um, if I wanted to uh, subscribe to some of the um, some of your feeds. How would I do that? Uh, we make it as hard as possible, first of all. But if you go to the website, uh, itconversations.com, up at the top there is a podcast slash RSS choice on the menu bar, and there you'll see a page that has um, all of our RSS feeds. We have. Um, a feed for everything we release. We have a feed just for our announcements. Uh, we have a feed for each of our regular series. And then we have some topic-based based feeds, too. If you're just only interested in software, you're only interested in biotech, you can subscribe to just those shows. But I think in looking at our stats, the vast majority of people subscribe to the everything feed, as we call it, and uh, then just skip through the things that they don't want. We, we try our best at the very beginning of every show to say what that show is so that people who don't want to listen to it can just skip it. So these shows, are they basically do you go through the different panels and pull out sound bites or are they just like... No, they're the whole they're the whole thing. So we'll go you know, if it's a panel discussion, we'll have the whole panel, we'll have the Q and A. Uh, we tighten them up quite a bit, and we make sure that they meet our standards. If it's if it's really too boring, we won't put it up. If it's uh, audio quality is not good enough, we won't post it. But uh, our engineers go through and edit those things quite carefully, and they they you can imagine the the kind of audio quality we get and how much work they have to do in terms of the varying levels that come through from a panel discussion. Doug, if someone wants to volunteer and get involved with IT conversations, how do they do that? Uh, right now. Uh, you know, as we're recording this the day before Thanksgiving, uh, it's a little hard because we have a bottleneck of mentors. Right now, our our uh, techniques are pretty awkward, and we're about to change that. The best thing they can do is to become a uh, a registered member of IT Conversations. You can do that on the site, and during registrations, you'll get the choice to subscribe to our newsletter. That newsletter comes out once a week through email. Either that. And again, that's just go to IT Conversations and register. Either that or to my personal blog, which is blogarhythms.com. And in both of those uh, formats, I publish the news and updates because we're about to open up the floodgates to let more volunteers in very, very shortly, within a matter of weeks, uh, because uh, we have had some attrition and we're about to increase the, um, uh, the publication rate. So we're going to need more help. What are your favorite podcasts? Hmm. Good question. Uh, you know, my favorites are actually some music podcasts because what what I love to do is get away from all this and just relax. I happen to like uh, The Roadhouse, which is a blues podcast. I like Coverville because of uh, uh, the various stuff there. I listen to a lot of things. I listen to Adam Curry because, uh, you know, you sort of have to listen to Adam to keep up to date with a lot that's going on. Uh, I listen to some of the NPR shows because, you know, I'm never... Uh, I can never hear them when I want to, but um, you'd be surprised how little podcast I listen to. I, in fact, I probably only listen to about a third of the stuff on our own network. I just don't have time. In for for you personally, what news media, be it uh, new media or traditional media, is most influential with you? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, it's mostly the blogosphere. 
I mean, I, I, I have a strange lifestyle. I mean, I'm stuck in a studio all day long, seven days a week, night times two. So I've got a television on, and I've got a couple of the cable channels I'm flipping through and just curse them constantly. Um, so I, I don't recommend it, but I have to admit that I'm hooked on some of them. Uh, I read the New York Times, um, and I am pretty active reader of the blogosphere. And if nothing else, the blogosphere is the fastest way to learn what's happening and then, you know, take me to other uh, resources. But, you know, at this point, if I had to pick only one medium to, to uh, capture stuff from, it would be the blogosphere. I would give up television. I would give up the Times uh, in order to be able to keep the blogosphere. How long have you been uh, subscribing to the New York Times for? Oh, a long time. I mean, I used to live in New York, so... And so, was, had, I left, I left have New York you seen... Have you? I mean, all these studies are coming out, you know, and IntelliSeq and all these different uh, um, studies on the Pew talking about how people have less confidence in the in, in in mainstream media. I mean, do you see that? I mean, do you see the quality of the reporting in the New York Times going downward, or is it still just as good as it ever was? Well, I think it's I. I think it might be a little bit lower. I mean, the, the fact that they've had to have cutbacks and they've had editorial pressures makes it tough for them. I'm not sure that maybe it was ever as good as we thought it was. So I don't think it's gotten much worse. I think in I, I happen to think that in many ways, the public's awareness of the uh, potential foibles and problems in traditional media uh, have increased, and that's a good thing. I think people, um, just as the just as journalists need to challenge our government, uh, we need to challenge our journalists. I think they, uh, you know, we've seen that with, um, for example, the whole uh, uh, Valerie Plame situation. And we've seen, you know, things like Judith Miller and people trying to figure out what the hell's going on with Judith Miller? Who is she and why is she doing what she's doing? Um, I, at least, was fascinated by that because it, it says that case, perhaps more than any, says an awful lot about journalisms and the New York Times in particular. What does it say? I'm not completely sure yet. I I think that what it says is that even our, uh, our papers, which are highly regarded and which may even, uh, by some people's standards, have a, have a somewhat liberal bias, which, of, of course, I think is really important that they do, that they're not in the clear, that they've got people who are vulnerable, that uh, can... You know, uh, you know. If you look at what um, um, Maureen, I mean Maureen Dowd's uh, op-ed about Judith Miller was one of the most interesting things I've read in the Times in a long time, where she essentially outed Judith Miller and said, uh, you know, in my words at least, that you know this woman's basically kissing up to the White House, and what do you expect? And uh, I think for us to realize that papers like the Times are still capable of doing that is a is an eye opener. Well, what else are they going to do? I mean, the challenge is that if they if they take them to task, that they'll lose access, right? Yeah, and you know that's a back and forth struggle. I mean, it's it's been fascinating to watch what's happened. Uh, I mean, it's even more visible in in you know let's not call it news, but let's call it cable news entertainment. Uh, to watch how the tide has turned against the Bush administration, simply because the the popularity ratings went down. So, you know, whereas you might think that real journalists might have been more aggressive about pursuing mistakes that the administration made two, or two and a half years ago, 
we're now seeing seeing them come in sort of as Johnny Come Latelys to this, and sort of putting on their uh, what look to be their investigative journalism hats, but they're not investigative journalism hats. They're entertainment hats. And they're really just riding a wave of uh, what they see as public sympathy. So you're feel, you're, what you're saying is that their backbone is stiffening because they feel it's not going to hurt their ratings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's right now, you know, right now it's, it's easy to be a bush basher. The question is, you know, where were they in February of 2003 when we were ra- uh, waiting to invade Baghdad? You know, then you couldn't find a journalist or very few journalisms who would stand up to the administration. And so that says an awful lot about the, the problems of journalism. Do you think that in the next presidential election, podcasting will be a factor? Mm, maybe. Not much. Not much. I think, I think it'll be totally eclipsed by blogging. Uh, blogging is so much bigger, so much more, more influential than podcasting, and I think that in the 2006 election that will still be the case. I think, you know, look, John Edwards um, came out with a podcast after he lost the election. Uh, pretty good podcast, by the way, from from the few episodes I heard. Um, I think there will be some politicians themselves who try and exploit podcasting, which is great. Uh, the more podcasts, the better. Um, you know, we're probably going to have a channel by then called uh, Political Conversations, uh, that has a sort of a different bent, though. I'm I'm more interested in trying to get uh, to hear from the people that you don't normally get to hear from uh, on the traditional media because of the scarcity of their bandwidth. I want to hear from candidates uh, more directly and um, uh, you know of of every type. But uh, no, I don't think it'll be huge. I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. It could be big, but I'm not I'm not expecting that. What a great point! The idea that those. Um individuals who are involved in government who may be uh, less appealing to major networks on the evening news but who may have a profound impact on on legislation and issues that affect us obviously podcasting is seems to be a, a wonderful way for those people to be heard well that's a couple of things yeah look at look at a, a, an election you know look what happened in the last election you know we had um, Kerry and Bush and the two vice presidential candidates. But, you know, could Ralph Nader get a seat at the table? No. So he was essentially cut out. Uh, you know, I don't care that much about Ralph Nader, but I think it's indicative of a problem. Here's another example, though. Uh, we just had recent elections, like everybody else. Uh, I had to vote for members of my local school board. I don't have a clue who these people are. In the ballot, I get a one-paragraph or two-paragraph letter that they wrote. I still don't know who they are. I can go to my neighbors and see what signs they've got up in their windows. I still don't know who these people are. But I would like there to be a way for those local candidates to get on um, get on a podcast and talk and maybe be interviewed. You know, the local the local community access channels either don't do it or they don't do it on a time-shifted basis, so it's not very convenient. But, you know, in every community around the world, we ought to be able to hear these candidates. Um, and the problem is that in traditional media, there's a scarcity of everything, scarcity of bandwidth, scarcity of time, and so forth. Well, in podcasting, there's no scarcity. Well, it's really more about economics than anything else, isn't it? I mean, in traditional media, terrestrial satellite broadcast, time is money. I mean, the time is inventory sold to advertisers, so well, that's, they've got to keep it moving. That's that's scarcity, right? Uh, it's exactly so. Well, you know, in a podcast, you know, if you've got a message that's only going to get out to a, a few hundred people, you can afford to do that. Now, you still have to have somebody who has the skill to record those people and do the post-production, but that's 
you know, what our new mission is, is to be able to spread that skill very, very widely. And we have some pretty exciting tools coming out that are going to help people do that. It's a very good point. Listen, uh, one last thing is, so is part of your mission going to be to give public officials uh, a, a channel through which to communicate? Uh, our mission in the Conversations Network, which is our new nonprofit entity, is to attempt to capture every spoken word event on the planet. Uh, I don't think we'll succeed in getting every one, but uh, why not think big, right? The, the plan, though, is to, you know, if there's a local debate of politicians, I would love it if somebody, one of our stringers somewhere in that community, would take a recorder and go record that event and put it on our network. Absolutely. I don't, I don't want to give the candidate the equivalent of commercial time. I don't want them to basically say, here's my presentation. But what I do want to do is capture the kinds of debates and public, uh, public meetings of potential uh, politicians that are going on. So you don't think uh, you'll ultimately be regulated to offer equal time for uh, candidates? Uh, hey, I wouldn't put anything past them. <laughs> I hope not. All right, listen, I know I said I wouldn't keep you more than half an hour, and I've already kept you for almost 45 minutes. So last question, okay, I promise. Um, it's kind of a silly question, but I'm going to ask it all the same. So my impression, okay, is that typically guys with mustaches are in leadership positions very often. You know, you see the head of the company, the CEO, has got a mustache. I know you have a mustache. I tried to grow a mustache, couldn't pull it off. What is it about guys with mustaches? You know, you're probably asking the wrong guy. I grew a mustache when I was 15 years old. I'm now 56 Get years old. Get out of here. I you grew a mustache at 15? 15? How did you pull yeah. it off? Was it one of those kind of like, uh, you know, mangy mustaches or was it Must a nice thick mustache? It started out pretty mangy, yeah. And I and I couldn't tell you why I did that. I don't think at 15 I was planning a leadership role. But uh, the fact is that, you know, I'm 56. I've been married for 34 years. My wife has never seen me without a mustache. My son has never <laughs> seen me without a mustache. And I don't dare shave it off or I'll, uh, I'll just freak him out. How long does it take to grow a good mustache? About uh, 40 years. It does, doesn't it? Because, <laughs> I mean, I've tried, I tried it for a year and finally I gave up. <laughs> I guess that's it. But that was an extra question. Doug, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Okay, thanks, Eric. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. <laughs>